Chapter 14 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. The Ulster Polonius. A good half of the humor of the late Mark Twain consisted of admitting frankly the possession of vices and weaknesses that all of us have and few of us care to acknowledge. Practically all of the sagacity of George Bernard Shaw consists of bellowing vociferously what everyone knows. I think I am as well acquainted with his works, both hortatory and dramatic, as the next man. I wrote the first book ever devoted to a discussion of them, and I read them pretty steadily even today, and with endless enjoyment. Yet, so far as I know, I have never found an original idea in them, never a single statement of fact or opinion that was not anteriorly familiar and almost commonplace. Put the thesis of any of his plays into a plain proposition, and I doubt that you could find a literate man in Christendom who had not heard it before, or who would seriously dispute it. The roots of each one of them are in platitude, the roots of every effective stage play are in platitude. That a dramatist is inevitably a platitudinarian is itself a platitude double-damned. But Shaw clings to the obvious even when he is not hampered by the suffocating conventions of the stage. His Fabian tracts and his pamphlets on the war are veritable compendiums of the undeniable. What is seriously stated in them is quite beyond logical dispute. They have excited a great deal of ire. They have brought down upon him a great deal of amusing abuse, but I have yet to hear of anyone actually controverting them. As well, try to controvert the Copernican astronomy. They are as bulletproof, in essence, as the multiplication table, and vastly more bulletproof than the Ten Commandments or the Constitution of the United States. Well, then, why does the Ulsterman kick up such a pother? Why is he regarded as an arch-heretic, almost comparable to Galileo, Nietzsche, or Simon Magnus? For the simplest of reasons. Because he practices with great zest and skill the fine art of exhibiting the obvious in unexpected and terrifying lights. Because he is a master of the logical trick of so matching two apparently safe premises that they yield an incongruous and inconvenient conclusion. Above all, because he is a fellow of the utmost charm and address, quick-witted, bold, limber-tongued, persuasive, humorous, iconoclastic, ingratiating, in brief, an Irishman, and so the exact antithesis of the solemn Sassanax who ordinarily instruct and exhort us. Turn to his Man and Superman, and you will see the whole Shaw machine at work. What he starts out with is the self-evident fact, disputed by no one not idiotic, that a woman has vastly more to gain by marriage under Christian monogamy than a man. That fact is as old as monogamy itself. It was, I dare say, the admitted basis of the palace revolution which brought monogamy into the world. 
but now comes Shaw, with an implication that the sentimentality of the world chooses to conceal, with a deduction plainly resident in the original proposition, but kept in safe silence there by a preposterous and hypocritical taboo, to wit, the deduction that women are well aware of the profit that marriage yields for them, and that they are thus much more eager to marry than men are, and ever alert to take the lead in the business. This second fact, to any man who has passed through the terrible years between twenty-five and forty, is as plain as the first. But by a sort of general consent, it is not openly stated. Violate that general consent, and you are guilty of scandalum magnatum. Shaw is simply one who is guilty of scandalum magnatum habitually. A professional criminal in that department. It is his life work to announce the obvious in terms of the scandalous. What lies under the horror of such blabbing is the deepest and most widespread of human weaknesses, which is to say, intellectual cowardice, the craven appetite for mental ease and security, the fear of thinking things out. All men are afflicted by it more or less. Not even the most courageous and frank of men likes to admit in specific terms that his wife is fat, or that she seduced him to the altar by a transparent trick, or that their joint progeny resemble her brother or father, and are thus cads. A few extraordinary heroes of logic and evidence may do it occasionally, but only occasionally. The average man never does it at all. He is eternally in fear of what he knows in his heart. His whole life is made up of efforts to dodge it and conceal it. He is always running away from what passes for his intelligence, and taking refuge in what passes for his higher feelings, i.e. his stupidities, his delusions, his sentimentalities. Shaw is devoted to the art of hauling this recreant fellow up. He is one who, for purposes of sensation, often for the mere joy of outraging the tender-minded, resolutely and mercilessly thinks things out, sometimes with the utmost ingenuity and humor, but often, it must be said, in the same muddled way that the average right-thinker would do it, if he ever got up the courage. Remember this formula, and all of the fellow's alleged originality becomes no more than a sort of bad-boy audacity, usually in bad taste. He drags skeletons from their closet and makes them dance obscenely, but everyone, of course, knew that they were there all the while. He would produce an excitement of exactly the same kind, though perhaps superior in intensity, if he should walk down the strand bared to the waist, and so remind the shocked Londoners of the unquestioned fact, though conventionally concealed and forgotten, that he is a mammal and has an umbilicus. Turn to a typical play and preface of his later canon, say, Androcles and the Lion. Here, the complete Shaw formula is exposed. On the one hand, there is a mass of platitudes. On the other hand, there is the air of a peep show. On the one hand, he rehearses facts so stale that even Methodist clergymen have probably heard of them. On the other hand, he states them so scandalously that the pious get 
all of the thrills out of the business that would accompany a view of the rector in liquor in the pulpit. Here, for example, are some of his contentions. A. That the social and economic doctrines preached by Jesus were indistinguishable from what is now called socialism. B. That the Pauline transcendentalism visible in the Acts and the Epistles differs enormously from the simple humanitarianism set forth in the four Gospels. C. That the Christianity on tap today would be almost as abhorrent to Jesus supposing him returned to earth as the theories of Nietzsche, Hindenburg, or Clemenceau, and vastly more abhorrent than those of Emma Goldman. D. That the rejection of the biblical miracles and even of the historical credibility of the Gospels by no means disposes of Christ himself. E. That the early Christians were persecuted, not because their theology was regarded as unsound, but because their public conduct constituted a nuisance. It is unnecessary to go on. Could anyone imagine a more abject surrender to the undeniable? Would it be possible to reduce the German exegesis of a century and a half to a more depressing series of platitudes? But his discussion of the inconsistencies between the four Gospels is even worse. You will find all of its points set forth in any elemental treatise upon New Testament criticism, even in so childish a tract as Ramsden Balmforth's. He actually dishes up with a heavy air of profundity, the news that there is a glaring conflict between the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew I, 117 and the direct claim of divine paternity in Matthew I, 18. More, he breaks out with the astounding discovery that Jesus was a good Jew and that Paul's repudiation of circumcision, now a cardinal article of the so-called Christian faith, would have surprised him, and perhaps greatly shocked him. The whole preface, running to 114 pages, is made up of just such shop-worn stuff. Searching it from end to end with eagle eye, I have failed to find a single fact or argument that was not previously familiar to me, despite the circumstance that I ordinarily give little attention to the sacred sciences and thus might have been expected to be surprised by their veriest commonplaces. Nevertheless, this preface makes bouncing reading, and therein lies the secret of the continued vogue of Shaw. He has a large and extremely uncommon capacity for provocative utterance. He knows how to get a touch of bellicosity into the most banal of doctrines. He is forever on tiptoe, forever challenging, forever sforzando. His matter may be from the public store, even from the public junk shop, but his manner is always all his own. The tune is old, but the words are new. Consider, for example, his discussion of the personality of Jesus. The idea is simple and obvious. Jesus was not a long-faced prophet of evil like John the Baptist, nor was he an ascetic, or a mystic. But here is the Shaw way of saying it. Quote, he was what we call an artist and a bohemian in his manner of life. Unquote. 
The fact remains unchanged, but in the extravagant statement of it, there is a shock for those who have been confusing the sour donkey they hear of a Sunday with the tolerant, likable man they profess to worship. And perhaps there is even a genial snicker in it for their betters. So with his treatment of the atonement. His objections to it are time-worn, but suddenly he gets the effect of novelty by pointing out the quite manifest fact that acceptance of it is apt to make for weakness, that the man who rejects it is thrown back upon his own courage and circumspection, and is hence stimulated to augment them. The first argument, that Jesus was of free and easy habits, is so commonplace that I have heard it voiced by a bishop. The second suggests itself so naturally that I myself once employed it against a chance Christian encountered in a Pullman smoking-room. This Christian was at first shocked, as he might have been by reading Shaw. But in half an hour, he was confessing that he had long ago thought of the objection himself and put it away as immoral. I well remember his fascinated interest as I showed him how my inability to accept the doctrine put a heavy burden of moral responsibility upon me and forced me to be more watchful of my conduct than the elect of God and so robbed me of many pleasant advantages in finance, the dialectic, and amour. A double jest conceals itself in the Shaw legend. The first half of it I have already disclosed. The second half has to do with the fact that Shaw is not at all the wholesale agnostic his fascinated victims see him, but an orthodox Scotch Presbyterian of the most cocksure and bilious sort. In fact, almost the archetype of the blue nose. In the theory that he is Irish, I take little stock. His very name is as Scotch as Haggis, and the part of Ireland from which he springs is peopled almost exclusively by Scots. The true Irishman is a romantic. He senses life as a mystery, a thing of wonder, an experience of passion and beauty. In politics, he is not logical, but emotional. In religion, his interest centers not in the commandments, but in the sacraments. The Scot, on the contrary, is almost devoid of romanticism. He is a materialist, a logician, a utilitarian. Life to him is not a poem, but a series of police regulations. God is not an indulgent father, but a hanging judge. There are no saints, but only devils. Beauty is a lewdness, redeemable only in the service of morality. It is more important to get on in the world than to be brushed by angels' wings. Here, Shaw runs exactly true to type. Read his critical writings from end to end and you will not find the slightest hint that objects of art were passing before him as he wrote. He founded, in England, the superstition that Ibsen was no more than a tin-pot evangelist, a sort of brother to General Booth, Mrs. Pankhurst, and the syndics of the Sex Hygiene Society. He turned Shakespeare into a bird of evil, croaking dismally in a rain-barrel, he even injected a moral content, by dint of Herculean straining, 
into the musical dramas of Richard Wagner, surely the most colossal sacrifices of moral ideas ever made on the altar of beauty. Always the ethical obsession, the hallmark of the Scotch Puritan, is visible in him. His politics is mere moral indignation. His aesthetic theory is cannibalism upon aesthetics. And in his general writing, he is forever discovering an atrocity in what was hitherto passed as no more than a human weakness. He is forever inventing new sins and demanding their punishment. He always sees his opponent not only as wrong, but also as a scoundrel. I have called him a Presbyterian. Need I add that he flirts with predestination under the quasi-scientific nom de guerre of determinism? That he seems to be convinced that while men may not be responsible for their virtues, they are undoubtedly responsible for their offendings and deserve to be clubbed, therefore? And this is Shaw the Revolutionist, the heretic, Next, perhaps, we shall be hearing of Benedict the Fifteenth, the Atheist. End of chapter 14 Recording by Linda Johnson